0: Hello and welcome to The Search, I'm Shahe Jurgen. This is Biblical History, the story of God's work through the ages, lesson number seven, Psalms and Worship. Joshua led Israel into the promised land. The twelve tribes were each allotted a portion of that land as their inheritance. Joshua commanded them to fully subdue and drive out whatever Canaanites remained, But instead, Israel accommodated the heathens whose evil influence led them into idolatry. This dark era of Israelite history lasted for some 400 years until the people cried out for a king to rule over them like all the other nations. God reluctantly authorized their petition, commanding his prophet Samuel to anoint Saul the Benjamite as Israel's first monarch. Saul was a good king for a time, but he eventually rebelled against the Lord. He became consumed with jealousy when a young upstart named David killed Goliath the giant and rose in popularity after winning numerous military battles. Saul has slain his thousands, the people sang, and David his ten thousands. 1 Samuel 18, verse 7. Now, at this point, Saul didn't even realize that God had secretly dispatched Samuel to anoint David as Saul's replacement. All he knew was that David was garnering more attention and acclaim than he was, and it drove him mad. King Saul eventually died in battle, and after a seven-year civil war, all of Israel crowned David as their king. David's greatest accomplishments included conquering the city of Jerusalem and establishing it as the nation's new capital, restoring and relocating the Ark of God, and preparing for the construction of a new and glorious temple, which his son Solomon would complete. David was far from sinless. He committed adultery with a woman named Bathsheba. When she became pregnant, he decided to cover up his crime by arranging for Bathsheba's husband to die in battle. The prophet Nathan confronted the king with the horrible severity of his crimes. When David finally acknowledged what he had done, his confession demonstrated why, in spite of all of his flaws and sins, he was still a man after God's own heart. He said, "'I have sinned against the Lord.'" 2 Samuel 12 and verse 13. He didn't try to blame others or make excuses as Saul had done before him. David knew he was wrong and admitted it. In fact, sometime later, King David wrote about this experience in Psalm 51. "'Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin.' For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me, verses 1 through 3. Now, this psalm reveals the deep and profound guilt David felt, as well as his genuine contrition and repentance. He begged for God's merciful forgiveness, and according to Nathan, he received it. The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. 2 Samuel 12, verses 13 and 14. Adultery and murder were death penalty offenses, but God's forgiveness of the penitent king spared him from execution. Tragically, sin often brings unintended consequences into people's lives. The baby born to David and Bathsheba died, and this death nearly broke David. But he realized he only had himself to blame. After the baby died, he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped, says 2 Samuel 12 and verse 20. It's easy to blame God for tragedy. But David understood that charging the Lord for wrongdoing was not the answer. Instead, the king knew that devotion to the Lord was the only hope anyone has for eternal life. After he worshiped, his demeanor improved. And when his servants asked him why he was feeling better, he told them, now that he's dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. 2 Samuel 12 and verse 23. David had confidence in life after death and that he would be with his departed child again one day. Now, David and Bathsheba eventually had another child whom they named Solomon, and the king decreed that Solomon would take his throne after his death, and that's precisely what occurred. King Solomon knew that there was a heavy burden of expectation upon him. King Saul had been a disaster, so God raised up a new dynasty to replace Saul's household. King David had been a triumph in spite of his personal failings. He united the tribes into one true nation centered around Jerusalem. He prepared for the construction of the temple to bind the people together and to God. Solomon had a high bar to meet. Early in his reign, while attending a sacrifice, the Lord appeared to Solomon and said, Ask for whatever you want me to give you, 1 Kings 3 and verse 5. The king could have asked for riches, power, or long life, but instead he acknowledged to God his own inadequacies in being the kind of king that his father was. Solomon said to God, give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong for who is able to govern this great people of yours. 1 Kings 3 and verse 9. Solomon's answer pleased the Lord. God ended up giving the king some of those other things, long life and wealth, but most importantly, he gave Solomon a wise and discerning heart, 1 Kings 3 and verse 12. The scripture says, God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breath of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the people of the east and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. 1 Kings 4, 29 and 30. An interesting note about Solomon's wisdom says that he spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs numbered 1,005, 1 Kings 4, 32. Now, this verse provides us with an important connection between the golden age of David and Solomon and the writing of Israel's wisdom literature. There are four major genres of literature in the Old Testament. There's the Torah, books of history, books of wisdom, and books of prophecy. In this series, we've already discussed a little bit about the books of Torah written by Moses. Uh, we've surveyed some of the historical writings already. We've looked at Joshua, Judges, Ruth, a little bit from First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. Future studies will examine the writings of the prophets, But what about this third category, wisdom? The books of wisdom are Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. James Smith described the premise of wisdom writings in this way. Israel's wisdom was founded upon the fundamental concept of the fear of Yahweh. The wisdom teachers seemed to be concerned about translating the principles of the law of God into practical guidelines for everyday living. Other than Job, the bulk of all these wisdom writings were produced during the days of David and Solomon. Solomon, as we just learned, was granted supernatural wisdom and understanding, and he used this gift from God to write about the way of the godly versus the folly of the wicked. And that's really the major premise of books like Proverbs. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for gaining wisdom and instruction, for understanding words of insight, for receiving instruction and in prudent behavior, doing what is right and just and fair. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 1, 1 through 3 and verse 7. Now, the largest and most preeminent of all the wisdom books is Psalms. The Psalter is a collection of 150 songs. It's rightly been called the hymn book of Israel, but more than that, these lyrical masterpieces were the hymn book and favorite Old Testament writings of the early church. We know this because the Psalms are quoted in the New Testament more than any other Old Testament source throughout history. Christians have read, cherished, recited, memorized, and sung the Psalms. Now, like any good collection of music, the book of Psalms is comprised of a variety of genres, including songs of lament, praise, wisdom, songs of thanksgiving, and of trust. A number of Psalms focus on the concept of Israelite royalty and its relationship to God, with many including messianic themes. The royal psalms in particular are an understandable inclusion in this hymn book because many of the psalms were written during the days of King David and his immediate successors. In fact, a large number were composed by David himself and other court-appointed musicians. The inception of the psalms is directly tied to the construction of the temple and the establishment of centralized Israelite worship. And this means that the Psalms were connected to Jerusalem, the temple, the monarchy, and the worship of God. In fact, that's the content of many of the Psalms focusing on these things. Now, Psalm 1 really sets the stage for how to approach the entire collection. Whoever compiled the Psalter into its final form knew that one needed to be inundated with these words of praise and wisdom, and if one would do that, blessings would follow. Psalm 1 says this, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so with the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. But the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Now, one of the poetic techniques of the Psalms is something called parallelism, where the same idea is stated multiple times in slightly different terminology. So in Psalm 1, we see, for example, the verbs walk, stand, and sit, all used to denote the action taken by the blessed man who delights in the law of God. However, on the other side, the one who abandons God's wise counsel is described with another triplet, wicked, sinner, and mocker. Psalm 1 is a wisdom song, and it sounds a lot like the book of Proverbs. It establishes that the only way to truly approach God in worship, again, which is what the Psalms are all about, is to be saturated with God's wise and divine instruction. Psalm 1 also includes some poetic imagery, which is common for all of the Psalms. Here we see this tree planted by the water. It's vibrant and teeming with life and produce. It's able to provide blessings for those who travel by and eat of its fruit. It's kind of a Garden of Eden imagery being used here to describe the one who is inundated with the law of God. So the Psalms are beautiful and poetic, and filled with all kinds of wonderful imagery. The Psalms also are an outlet for human emotion. Many of the Psalms reflect struggle, hardship, persecution, and even depression. They demonstrate how God's people sometimes cry out to the Lord for help and guidance, and intervention. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, was David's cry in Psalm 22, verse 1, which the Lord Jesus echoed on the cross. These Psalms teach Christians that it's okay to struggle with emotions and even feelings of abandonment, but the answer to hardship is not to forsake God. The answer is to draw closer to him, even if that means asking the hard questions of life, like simply saying, Lord, where are you? I need you right now more than ever. Many of the Psalms made Israel ready for the ultimate manifestation of God's love for his people by preparing them for the coming of the messianic King. Remember, God had promised David that one of his heirs would establish an eternal kingdom and sit on an everlasting throne. The Psalms often reflect the hope that God would surely fulfill all his tremendous promises to David and to Israel. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain, says the Lord, Psalm 2 verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom, Psalm 45, verse 6. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, Psalm 110, verses 1 and 4. The royal psalms acknowledged how God had blessed the Davidic line and anticipated the fullness of God's covenant coming to fruition with the arrival of Israel's great king. It's no wonder that after his resurrection when Jesus met two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus, he was able to say in Luke 24:44, "This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Psalms were Hebrew poems written in ways that people could memorize them, both to remember the wonders of God and to praise and worship Him. In the end, worship is the key. Worship is the act of ascribing worth, honor, and reverence to God. Abraham worshipped God by building altars to sacrifice before him. Moses worshipped God by bowing before him on Mount Sinai and establishing the services of the tabernacle. David, Solomon, and the priests and Levites of their time brought the worship of God to the Jerusalem temple through sacrifice, singing, and prayer. The Psalms are designed to lift the worshiper up to higher planes where God dwells. They prepare his people to come into his holy presence and to honor him. And remember, as the book of Leviticus says, God must always be regarded as holy. Let's now consider a few truths from psalms and worship. Number one, we've learned that God is a wise counselor who gives his people guidance for everyday living. We've learned a little bit about the nature of wisdom, this ability to discern between the two ways of living, the wise way of God and the foolish way of the world. We've learned about Israel's golden age, the time of David and Solomon, when most of Israel's wisdom literature was produced. We've been introduced to the book of Psalms, a collection of Hebrew songs that are meant to ponder the relationship between God and his people, including the struggles believers face every day. And finally, we've learned a little bit about worship, the praise, honor, and adoration given to God. The conquest of Canaan was a spiritual mountaintop, but it was followed by the dark valley of the era of the judges. Israel's spiritual life improved during Samuel's day, but King Saul eventually brought about another low point. David and Solomon, however, lifted Israel back atop the mountain peaks through wise counsel and psalm-filled worship at the Jerusalem temple, the glory days would not last, as we'll see in the next study. But for now, one can join with the psalmist in singing, praise the Lord, praise God in his sanctuary, praise him in his mighty heavens, praise him for his acts of power, praise him for his surpassing greatness. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Psalm 150, verses 1, 2, and 6. Let all praise be given to the Lord our God.